1: Hi everyone! Mind Rolling is here again. And it's me, Raghu Marcus, who's happy, happy, happy to uh, introduce the, the guest that I have today, another very, very old friend and teacher. I consider her uh, a real teacher to me. Every time we have a chat, she says the most insightful and real. She is real. She gets real, and it helps me to get way more real. Before we go any further, I just want to mention again briefly, please consider supporting what we're doing out here with the Be Here Now Network with these wonderful teachers. All right. Ramdas, Das, Krishna Das, Sharon Salzberg, Lama Suri Das, Joseph Goldstein. I mean, they're all just, uh, I mean, they're our brethren and sisters, and uh, they are uh, people that really provide uh, an offering that allows us to navigate our lives in a much more equin, with, with much more equanimity. We've also got Chris Grosso and Danny Goldberg and Roshi Joan does uh, her appearances uh, as a guest pod- podcaster. And uh, 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 who else? Who else? Ramdev, Dale Borglum's been doing stuff, fantastic stuff. And, and we have a new podcast from Melanie Moser called Shakti Hour. You've got to listen to that. She uh, interviews women in spirituality. Terrific stuff. Um so yeah please it's a donation through the donate button it's a, a bookmarking our amazon link um those are the ways in which we would hope that you could continue to support us we're trying to get these teachers off the road man these teachers are on the road a lot and we'd love to be part of what helps them to get uh, income I mean, we share this income, whatever comes in, whatever donations, whatever comes in through Amazon, we share it with them, and it helps us to keep us going because we have people who work on this on a day-to-day basis. Okay, enough said. I'm not going to do any more fundraising, but Roshi Halifax, I mean, she's uh, talk about um, Jesus, the value that she has. and what she's done over over her teaching career is just, uh, you know, I, I don't want to be bullshitty about it, but I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate her. I really can't. Uh, we talk about the integration of justice and love in this podcast. That's a primary thing relating, of course, to what's going on in this country. Politically, culturally, polarization-wise, us and me, all of the stuff that's really... Uh, Giving rise to a lot of disturbing emotions, um, and and one of the th- one of the things that we talked about, uh, she talked about anger in a positive way, and I was like, really? I mean, anger? I mean, I'm scared of my anger because I just I just feel like I go into an abyss with it. And she said, "The seed of wisdom in anger." is clear discernment. She turned it completely around. And and even when I talked about how I, when I do get angry about what's going on and some of the things that are going on with this new administration and all of that, and how I take all anger that I have from other stuff and I put it and focus it in on this, so it creates a whole other... Um, a whole other drama for me that's beyond what it was that initially set me off. And she said, The fact that you're aware of that is the beginning of it dissipating. It's just some great stuff. Uh, I can't tell you. I, I just, she's just. Uh... Okay, no more accolades about Roshi Joan Halifax, but here she is, and here is the podcast. Mind Rolling, the integration of justice and love. See you next time. Hi, everyone. It's Raghu back. Another episode of Mind Rolling. This time with uh, a very, very old friend and someone who's so very dear to my heart, Roshi Joan Halifax, who needs no introduction at all. Good morning, Roshi.
2: Good morning.
1: Now, many of you uh, have uh, are very familiar with Roshi. In fact, uh, some of her talks are, are put out as podcasts on the network. And uh, you can check them out go by going to Be Ram Dass' Be Here Now Network. So, uh, Roshi, as I've talked to you before... I have been doing a bunch of different podcasts lately around what has gone on since the election and the ensuing new administration and Of course, there has been a a ton of uh, reactivity and wringing of hands and polarization and uh just uh a real, a lot of fear in the air and a lot of chaos and so on. So I've been talking to many of our friends and teachers, uh, friends of Ram Dass's over the last decades. And uh, yeah, so the first thing I I usually start the conversation off, where were you on that fateful moment, December 8th, when everyone thought it was all going to be just dandy and then suddenly it wasn't?
2: Well, I, I'm not sure if it was December 8th, wasn't it? November, uh, November, November, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> sorry. December 8th, I was coming out of Rohatsu session, so uh, that was a, a different state of mind. Yes. Well, you know, I, um, I made a choice uh, when I came back from Asia, uh, being in the Himalayas and being offline, for five weeks, um, being in Dolpo, working in the, the our Upaya Nomads Clinic, and really being in a rarefied, um, uh, extremely remote place, and then coming back to this uh, contentious, um, disrespectful, uh, deriding uh, atmosphere. Uh, in our country, and in fact, um, this is leading up to tell you where I was, but yeah. um, you know, I flew from Kathmandu and landed in JFK, and uh, the difference between the faces that I left in Kathmandu, which um, in spite of all of the political complexities and Uh, The effects of the earthquake and the many problems in Nepal, which is the second poorest country after Afghanistan, to arrive in New York and to see so many unhappy faces and um, uh, faces that, you know, people were, in a way, they were kind of in a trance as though somehow... um, uh, America's soul was gone, mm. and then I had to fly immediately to Washington, and um, the same experience of looking, you know, for where are the bright eyes as I'm uh, leaving the airport and going into a board meeting, and in a way experiencing the same thing that um, uh, there is so much dukkha so much deep uh, dissatisfaction, uh, such a feeling of hungry ghostness mm. in our country. And, you know, I just come from a place where uh, uh, poverty is pervasive, but not spiritual poverty. And I was uh, wary uh somehow uneasy uh, going into this uh, election evening. Um, Definitely, uh, I was um, uh, horrified, in a way, by the uh, kind of disrespect toward women, um, toward uh, people of color, toward people who are differently abled Um, toward people with uh, maybe not the sort of usual sexual preferences, to how they were being uh, treated and referred to and uh, related to in the course of this uh, process of of the campaign. And I was really uncomfortable. You know, I'm a a person who stands, I feel, in principle a lot, inside of uh, principles a lot. And... Um, I decided that uh, on election night, I I was not going to sit with my community. I had an uneasy feeling. Hmm. So I I went to uh, uh, my friend Gay Dillingham's house, and she's the one who uh, did the beautiful film
0: uh, on Bravdas,
2: Tim, Dying Hmm. to Know, and she and I are old and close friends, and I sat with her and Jim Gollin um, and his wife, Suzanne Gollin, and a few other friends, Noah, uh, my assistant, uh, Joshin, my vice abbot here at Upaya. And really, uh, within an hour, I knew um, this was a catastrophe. And uh, I actually went home, and I, I had to just go to bed. Um. It's not that I felt that Hillary Clinton was a perfect candidate, but um, I also know that uh, you know she and I are more or less the same age. She's a little bit younger than me, and I've followed her career for decades, and she has uh, benefited women, benefited children, made health a, a very important uh, initiative. I also knew that she was just crackling smart and that she was made of iron and that uh, to deal with the issues that uh, we're facing in today's world, reactivity was not going to be useful. So um, when, you know, I saw the outcome of the election, um, I I felt, uh, you know, I don't have that kind of equanimity that some spiritual people claim. Oh. Um, I felt compassion for everybody, including Trump. I somehow think uh, he didn't really want to win this election. He didn't want to take on this job. He's, you know, basically um, delegated so much to um, Bannon and um, other uh we can't call them functionaries because they're the, they're the instrumentalists, if you will. They're playing um, the, our political situation to the, the max. And so I, you know, I've been trying to explore my own uh, response to the situation, being very um, uh, interested in uh, uh, a sense of brokenheartedness about. Uh, the future we're leaving for our children, concern about our capacity, uh, if we can transform this uh, administration, get them out. Um, uh, how are we going to dial back the environmental implications, implications? Um, uh, looking at what's happening in terms of Trump's pick for his cabinet members, looking at the situation with Uh, in relation to the environment, uh, to education, to international relations, and so on. So, on one hand, um, I am very uh, sensitized and concerned. And I realize how important it is to feel that because it gives me the energy to actually mobilize myself, to send my voice in the world to show up in the Women's March, to talk to my students about values and principles, um, to engage uh, in uh, um, contacting our Congress people, uh, to support uh, the politicians I feel who are standing on the side of right, and to um, work uh, at the integration of both justice and love. And i um, Uh, I don't feel that this is a time to uh, bypass in any way. I think it's very important to, uh, first of all, be very grounded, uh, to be able to see clearly we're living in a a world where um, our our ability to perceive what's true, just in terms of uh, everyday facts, is being eroded by our attention, being fragmented by our media, uh, by our digital devices, um, by an alt-fact world. And um, what's fascinating about that process from my point of view, is that um, not only do we need to question uh, you know, the alt-facts, uh, the, the construction of alternate realities which are complete fabrications, um, uh, we're also uh, questioning what might be true anyway. And uh, this has uh, two possible scenarios that I think are really important to look at. You know, one is, this is what happened in Germany in the 1930s, where there was a, uh, a slow um, but concerted uh, effort to uh, manipulate people's view of how they perceived the world and what was tolerable. And the tolerance for the uh, uh, unacceptable uh, increased to the point where millions of people uh, were killed. And um, I believe that's happening at this time. Uh, There is an increasing tolerance for the unacceptable, Mm -hmm. whether it has to do with... Gender related issues, race related issues, uh, um, uh, and you know, the whole range of, of uh, issues that are uh, under assault at this time by the, the current administration. Mm-hmm. That's one side of the, the equation. I mean, I, the other side of the equation is that um, uh, our capacity to um, actually uh, Understand that uh, the compassion tells us that this is suffering, both the delusory aspect and also uh, the predicted and present outcomes and effects of what's happening in our uh, social and political situation, and to identify it suffering and as suffering, and to commit ourselves. Just as Ramdas went on the women's march, and it was not a women's march; it's a global march for love and justice. Um, that we have to take a stand. We have to work both uh, globally, and we have to work locally um, to educate and to agitate. <laughs> mm.
1: You know, integration of justice and love. I mean, that's uh, a core statement as far as I'm concerned and the, let's talk about the that that's a very tall order and very very difficult in relation to how ang- anger is is there for many of us there's a lot of anger and when that persists uh, in in any amount uh, it it certainly becomes a very difficult thing to, actually, uh, carry out, uh, social action around justice and so on. How do you, how are you, ha- I mean, I, I see you, uh, on, uh, on social media, and you are very, very direct, and as you are, <laughs> every day, uh, in person and, uh, in teaching, and, um, uh, is is there, uh, and I'm sure there has been when this whole thing went down and when you see the kinds of actions that are being taken by this administration, uh, there there must be some reactivity inside you. How are you dealing with that related to then being able to take an action without anger?
2: Well, I think anger is important at this time. Um, I think to... uh, uh, circumvent uh, a sense, any sense of moral outrage that's arising within us, is to be unrealistic in relation to the harm that is uh, being uh, that's occurring at this time. Now, I think what one has to understand anger in perspective. Uh, anger, for one thing, has within it um, the seed of uh, wisdom associated with clarity, with discernment. And um, if you cut the uh, value of anger out of your experience, um, in a way, you're taking some of the structure that allows us to uh, see clearly into things as they are. So um, uh, the seed of wisdom in anger is discernment. That's the first thing. The second thing is uh, our anger toward uh, the experience of disempowerment that is going on, whether we're speaking in terms of the natural world or in terms of uh, race or children or women or economic justice, um, we should be angry. And that sense of moral outrage, in other words, uh, the violation of uh, equity that is happening at this time, um, where, you know, everything is being oriented in, in terms of this, what's currently unfolding toward the 1%, so to speak, that that sense of moral outrage uh, gives us the arousal level necessary to mobilize ourselves into action. And it's essential that we act. We can't just sit there, gaze at our navel, and say it's all love. Um, love is, does not uh, 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 mean that we are passive in the face of harm. I think Martin Luther King was clear about the relationship between love and justice. Anything that stands in the way of love is in, unjust, the absence of justice is points to the absence of love so i don't separate love and justice in this in this regard i see them as intimately intertwined so one is to you know understand that the wisdom within anger is clear discernment two is the energy within anger mobilizes us into compassionate action.
1: Hmm. Um, there's
2: a... so, so I have to say, I was just with a, a group of wonderful people in uh, the Bay Area who are philanthropists, and people were coming up to me and saying, Roshi, I'm so angry, as, as though they should be guilty or ashamed for being angry. And mm. I'm saying, I'm so grateful that mm. you're angry. And they're looking at me like, have you lost your mind? You're a Buddhist. Absolutely not. It's not that we are eroded by anger. It's that we're mobilized into compassionate action by anger.
1: But there's a certain, I know in myself, there's something that happens. And I'm hearing you, what you're saying about anger and clear discernment as a part of wisdom. But there's a certain part, something in me that when this anger comes up, it pulls in other places in me that don't have that object that I was angry about, but as, has an object, maybe shit that I was angry about, like as a child even, with my father or something. And it pulls it up, and then it, it accumulates it all together, and it doesn't have wisdom. And, and it's, it's that, that anger, that, uh, shall we say, impure anger. I don't know what the word would be.
2: Well stupid, stupid, stupid anger
1: yeah.
2: yeah yeah but what i but the thing is is that you just proved to me you're not stupid because you see that, and that's the point, really, Ragu, is that um we have to have a metacognitive perspective or a wisdom perspective about what our experience is, and we can become a toy of our anger, or our anger can be an instrument of love,
1: mm. <laughs> okay. I like it.
2: <laughs> you know, the other thing is is that um, it is so easy for us to polarize. Mm, yeah. And it is, you know, it is really fun to take sides.
1: Yeah.
2: Uh, because we're basically competitive beasts. Yeah. However, um, if in discerning clearly we do not see that the so-called other side is suffering too, we've missed the point. So I had a conversation with one of the young people here at our Zen Center this morning uh, about Kellyanne Conway and um, the uh, derision that, that she is being subjected to for, yeah. you know, her the bowling the so-called Bowling Green massacre, which is, you know, wow, hello, um, yeah. uh, talk about fabrication. But, you know, the other side of the equation for me is, you know, I try to do perspective taking and I also try to see out from her eyes what um, she must be experiencing uh, at this point for being so humiliated by the media. And it's not to say that... um, uh, What she did wasn't just, it was stupid and manipulative. There's no question uh, about this uh, being a stupid and manipulative thing to do, which she does that, you know, every day. But also if we step out of this kind of uh, perspective of schadenfreude, of wanting to shame others, and for just a moment look out through her eyes – for whatever reason that she's, you know, in this game that she's playing. And it is a kind of uh, um, uh, ugly Leela that she's caught in. Um, I just, suddenly I thought about her and thought, wow, she she must be, um, it must be pretty interesting to be in her experience right now. Um, Being held accountable by, you know, all uh, by world media, for being uh, a, a blatant fabricator.
1: Yeah, yeah.
2: And what you know, I think I I said to my my student this morning. No matter how much um, we disrespect uh, Donald Trump, what is going to be um, the most skillful means of dealing with him? Is it to uh, satirize him? Is it to, you know, put naked statues of him in every town (laughs) in America and and completely uh, humiliate him and shame him? Um, Or are there are there other skillful means uh, for dealing with him? And we can even look at, you know, our own mental experience when we think about Conway or Trump and uh, the assault by the media on uh, their character, which they have deserved, no doubt about that. But um, you know what must they be going through, and how will that actually harden them up mm. to become even more reactive yeah. and uh, less sane
1: yeah.
2: in these circumstances?
1: You know, <laughs> Ramdas. Uh When I talked to him about all of this, he said, one of the things he said, this is a tremendous opportunity for us to go inside and just watch the kind of reactivity and watch our knee-jerk reactions and our polarizations and so on. It's a great opportunity. And then we talked about his, his methodology, where he has a nice picture, and he's had one since... God, since the 70s, and he had, some, I don't know, Nixon, I guess, I don't know.
2: I know, he had Nixon, Cheney, and then yeah. he had Warner, and Caspar Weinberger, and now he's got Donald on his altar, and I think that we practice, this is where we practice, you know, we just don't put, you know, Maharaji on the altar, that's easy for yeah. us. Yeah. No, he nailed it.
1: Yeah. So... Here's, here's an interesting thing. We're still talking about polarization. I get a letter sent directly to me. Somebody who listens to the podcast, who has been a longtime student of Ramdas, connected to the whole scene for, for a long, long time. And he says to me, uh, I had put a letter out. It was actually a, a letter around fundraising. Um, for many of you, f- uh, I think I said something. For many of you, th- looking towards a very, very difficult time ahead. Just something like that. And he wrote back and, and I and he said, I'm so y- you're assuming that uh, it's difficult because Trump was elected. I have to tell you that I voted for I, I am and he went into a whole historical thing about how close he is to Ramdas Maharaji and, and all of it. And and he said, I have to tell you I voted for Trump and I'd vote for him again. And I, I really take umbrance at the fact uh, of, of this uh, assumption that if you're a Republican, then you can't be, uh, uh, that only liberal progressives can be uh, devotees or, or Hindus, Buddhists, whatever. And, uh, and I just had to tell you that and, and tell you my feelings around that. So I, I, I wrote him back because I felt it deserved, you know, uh, attention, because he was very, very respectful and calm. There wasn't any kind of diatribes or any of it. And I said, I, I am nothing uh, against, uh, it's, it's not a matter of Republican policies or Democratic policies, although in this case, one thing that is really uh, very concerning, of course, is the stance around the environment, which environmental issues, which are going to affect our uh, our children so deeply for, I mean, God knows what. But aside from that, I'm talking about uh, what we're dealing here with the human, with the human who is, uh, uh, you know, uh, just uh, treating women like chattel, who is so disrespectful towards physically challenged people, who is uh, the racist comments and so on. This is what's concerning this is not values that any of us would respect. Forget Democratic or, or Republican, and, and that's what I said. And he act, he wrote back, and he actually said, um, well, you know, you get a lot of that from the media. They kind of put things together in a way that, uh, you know, make it seem like he was reacting to this physically challenged reporter, or et cetera, et cetera. So he had his, you know, he had his... Uh, his excuses to allow him to continue to believe that pol- policy-wise, that's all he's interested in. And and we've seen other people who have expressed this same thing. So this was my first real dialogue with somebody who supported him. And um, and it was a good dialogue in that it was respectful, which many a time one sees that it's not. I mean, I see stuff of people I know on Facebook who, who actually won... One's child and one's uh, grandfather or something completely have broken with them. I mean, families broken as a result of this. What is your experience? Have you been talking to people who directly, have you had uh, real direct um, you know discussions with people who uh, have supported Trump?
2: Not much. No. I um, <clears throat> no. You know, I think most of the people who are in our orbit um, are much, you know, much more oriented toward uh, liberal politics. No. The people that I've been with since the election, you know, since in, in, in this uh, period of time have been people who are involved with social engagement, social service, uh, people who are doing environmental work. Uh, one of my best friends is Rebecca Solnit. So, you know, she is right there uh, at the political edge uh, calling to task, um, you know, uh uh, many individuals who are engaged in harm mm. around uh, gender and the environment and so forth. So you know the idea of uh, uh, of um, you know lifting, breaking out of my bubble so to speak, mm. and um, sitting down with uh, um, Trump supporters. I don't think there's one Trump supporter per se. I don't think it's a unified population, just like I don't believe that uh, the so-called liberal uh, contingent in this country or globally is a unified population. You know, millions of people marched on January 21st. Millions. I doubt if there were many people who voted for Donald Trump who marched. Those millions of people... Uh, were from all over the world. They weren't, you know, just in Washington, D.C. Uh, the biggest political turnout in the city of New Mexico, Santa Fe, the, the, in the state of New Mexico ever, uh, was at this uh, particular event, uh, which was an emergent event coming really out of um, issues related to uh, women's rights. Now... Have I sat down with a Trump supporter and tried to hash it out? No. I'd, I'm not sure I have the stomach for doing that hmm. at this point. Hmm. You know, I'm personally in a process of um, trying, to, uh, trying to make my uh, views around values and principles that inform uh, uh, our personal morality and our national ethics. I'm trying to articulate those views and values at this point. Um, I'm not able, actually, to sit down with someone who, uh, you know, I'm not able to hold it. Uh, It took me, for example, um, about a year of working in the penitentiary for me to work with um, the subtlety of my biases Mm. in relation to people who had murdered other people and to be able to hold both perspectives uh, in a way that allowed for me to communicate skillfully, and to bring love and justice together. So I'm in a process right now. And, um, yeah, I'm working that edge internally. I don't want to step into a world where I don't have the skillful means developed within me uh, so I can be an authentic and useful presence. Mm. Yeah, so, you know, mm. I'm, no, I'm not going to go to a Trump rally. Mm-hmm. I might go as an anthropologist, (laughs) you know, but I'm not going to go as um, someone representing the values and principles that I represent. I'm not ready yet.
1: You're not ready. I ain't ready, okay?
2: Yeah. Yeah, This is a process we're in. I just just keep thinking about, you know, Germany in the 1930s. Mm. Uh, I just, you know, briefly read an article about Hannah Arendt. Uh, in the uh, New Yorker, just very, I, I quickly skimmed it this morning about, you know how um, we uh, and she, but you know how easy it is for us to um, adapt to the increasing heat of the water, so that suddenly we're living in a world that, um, where values that were unacceptable the year before, are now being accepted.
1: Mm. Wow. Yeah, that's a big one. You talked more about it a little earlier. I have something that uh, it comes from you, I believe, that's uh, something I think good for, for us all to, to hear about. It's easy to feel overwhelmed by all the bad news and the horrific pictures that are a constant through, the, through our media and through our devices. This is a form of empathy that works against us. I thought that was a really uh, a statement that uh, needed because uh, I kind of get what you're saying. Uh, but I think it'd be good if you if you expanded on did, that. Did I write that? You did.
2: Oh, God, please send me my quote. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, if, if a bit comes out of the work of Paul Bloom, Um Mm. Uh, his work on on empathy, and I think this is a really important thing. Empathy is uh, the the experience of resonance somatically, affectively, and cognitively with another, and you know the other doesn't necessarily have to be a good person. Mm. I mean, you know, it's like um, as again going back to uh, uh, the the 30s and Hitler where um, suddenly people had interjected Hitler's psyche and it had become normal for them. Or uh, us watching a demagogue, or watching a charismatic teacher, or us uh, watching uh, a villain in a movie um, where uh, suddenly we begin to sort of feel like that and those behaviors become normalized for us because we've identified or we've fused with an unprincipled other mm.
1: yeah but isn't uh, this this quote also has to do with the volume that's coming back from all of the images the images of from Syria the images of refugees, the images from uh, famine in Africa, whatever they may be, and the now very current images of, of the injustices that are coming, spewing out of this White House. And, and you get a feeling in your body, as you said, talking about semantic, you get a feeling, oh, God, you know, this is terrible. And, and, you know, you, you, it's a depressive feeling and it's a feeling and and if you see actually refugees, whatever, there's an, there's a feeling of empathy, but I kind of get what you are. I don't know. I mean, I thought I got this quote from you, by the way, um, that, uh, that it's a kind of, okay, I've had this feeling. So now I'm a good person because I've had this empathetic feeling yet Nothing is carried forward. There is no... I mean, you talked about all the actions. Now is a time for action. There's a way in which we get inured. Is that not true? I mean, I think that's a little bit of what you're saying. You know,
2: I, I might have been... Uh, this quote might have appeared in the context of um, of uh, what I was talking about in terms of the bubble that we get into, in, uh, particularly in Facebook, where mm. we're liking, uh, you know... We feel connected to, we feel like we're doing something when we like a quote, a story, or an image, particularly uh, related to social justice, and we feel like we're somehow participating by that affirmation. But um, in yeah, a way, it's it. not. That's, you know. It's yeah. like we're satisfied. We have a sense of satisfaction yeah. and engagement, but all we are, we're in a kind of echo chamber.
1: Yeah. That's exactly And
2: so I'm saying, get out of the echo chamber. You know, part of, you you were saying I was traveling a little too much, and I agree, I am. Um, You know, I'm off to Smith College on Monday, then I go to a big hospital uh, a few days later uh, in uh, Toronto, and I'm sure I'll meet plenty of Trump supporters in one place or another.
1: Not in Toronto. I was born there. You ain't going to meet me there.
2: Okay, no Trump supporters there. But um, in any case, um, uh, you know, where I try to step out of my bubble is um, by going into, you know, not just in my Buddhist center, wonderful Upaya Zen center, or not just, you know, in the embrace of uh, Ram Dass's amazing atmosphere, um, but to step into more um, lay environments like hospitals, like universities and to uh, engage this kind of inquiry in those settings Um, now admittedly this is not i'm not in the rust belt (laughs) so i'm i'm clear that i i am uh not there and i wish i were you know it's kind of like uh i keep wanting to go and spend some time with my old friend wendell berry he's you know, in Kentucky, he's in that world. They're blowing the tops of uh, off of mountains. Um, their rivers are poisoned. Uh, the coal industry is also in collapse. Um, there's uh, many problems there. So, you know, I don't want to be unrealistic yeah. about, you know, what my role is. But stepping out of spiritual communities um into other communities, like, for example, last week I was in San Francisco and gave the keynote at the Airbnb One with 3,000 employees from Airbnb coming from all over the world, um, all of them under 35. uh, And, you know, that fascinating uh, ecology, new kind of business ecology, uh, which is based on emergence and feedback and mutuality, realizing uh, what Brian Chesky said to me was, you know, um, we've got to orient our values toward, not just toward inclusion, but toward compassion.
1: Mm. True, that's a nice statement.
2: I thought that was just fantastic. So, you know, they invited me to do the keynote for their 3,000 employees. Mm. So, you know, I think we're we're at a time um, where again, going back to principles and values, where the development of moral character is essential, and that we have to really get clear of, you know, about what our our values are. And for me, uh, one of my values is love. Hmm. The uh, uh, that um, I, I love political satire, but too much Schadenfreude, too much derision is unhealthy. Hmm um uh the other value that i feel is essential is justice and bringing these two threading these two uh with each other and to see them basically as valences of the same thing hmm. goodness
1: hmm. now there's one, one thing that uh, before we st- finish with this uh this chat roshi um uh, there there's something in terms of just development of oneself, you know, the stuff that Ramdas talks about, and he talked to me on the, on the podcast about was, and he talks about forever, until you can get your heart straight, how can you feel that you're going to have any positive actions be created through social action? So um, one of the things that I saw of yours that struck me as something really beneficial to cultivate, uh, equanimity. The Fourth Abode. You have a wonderful little article uh, posted about that. Um, You know, equanimity is grounded in the experience of letting letting go. The world in and around us is constantly changing. One moment, your brother is alive. The next moment, he's dead in a car accident. One morning, you feel a lump in your breast, and your life changes in a way that you cannot avoid. One afternoon, the doctor says you have inoperable cancer with three months to live following year free of cancer you're putting your life back together
2: did and, i write that
1: yeah this for sure okay i've got it right here it's right here okay uh, you got to talk about that i think it's a i think it's a difficult thing to cultivate because it can have so many uh spiritual bypass bullshit around it right Yet, I think it's it's really worthy. Um, that's why I want you to talk about it a little bit. How can we move towards uh, an equanimity?
2: So, equanimity for me is that capacity to maintain balance um, in the midst of any condition and to hold really all beings in equal regard. And so, even uh, uh, the the wonderful uh, Dolpo Rinpoche who's here at Upaya for uh, a few months. He's just a wonderful person. Oh. And, um, uh, you know, we were talking about um, the value of equanimity, which is this, it is um, to be really grounded, open, inclusive, appreciative, curious toward, um, able to sustain, um, Uh, you know, having really good duck feathers, if you will, able to sustain uh, uh, a lot of difficulties, uh, able to be really uh, resilient. And I, you know, I always thought that um, Al Gore lost the election because of what he communicated through his body. He was kind of a stiff. And so, you know, having a strong back doesn't mean you have a stiff back. It, Mm -hmm. It means more like stalk of bamboo. The wind comes and you're you're able to bend and spring back into place. Mm. And I think that's um, uh, really important to understand that equanimity is not being flat. Uh, It's also not being stiff. You know, it's that capacity to be fundamentally resilient and um, to have the courage and the strength to uphold yourself. And um, again, you know, in talking with uh, one of my students this morning, One of the reasons I went to work in the prison system um, was that I uh, felt um, so uh, deeply uh, that I had something to learn by sitting in the charnel ground of a maximum security prison. Mm. Um, This is a place where not only others suffer, but I didn't know if I had the bones to stay Uh, open and um, clear and not polarized for or against because you're working in a context of structural violence, but to hold things with both compassion and equanimity intertwined. So working in this charnel ground setting of the prison system was um, a tremendous uh, teaching for me. Because it really tried uh, or tested um, my capacity to sustain equanimity, both when I felt personally physically threatened by being in this really scary environment, also being in a organizationally a really toxic environment. And was I going to be uh, somehow uh, degraded eventually by becoming uh, cynical and defensive and reactive? Or could I open my heart boundlessly to the truth of suffering? And I won't say that I passed um, the test perfectly, but I learned a lot. Um, I uh, discovered that my bones were stronger than um, I realized, that my heart was bigger than I realized. I also learned how fear governed my life and how fear governs the lives of most people. And that the only way, in, in a certain way of speaking, um, to transform fear, and it the word fair, F-A-R-E, F-A-R-E um, is from the same root, is literally to go through it. <laughs> and so I think my equanimity in part is Whatever I have is because I have gone through it. I've been through it. Mm.
1: And I, I, I would love for you to just briefly say, to get to the point of having the courage to face internally and to allow yourself to be in a situation where you can encounter fear, etc., in, inside yourself. What What's the main... Practice that you have done in your life to engender this courage,
2: Raghu. I think it's not really just one practice. It's been a combination, and uh, one of those has been to develop attentional balance. To you know, really be able to uh, bring at my attention into a place of uh, stability and uh, to have it. Uh, be very grounded and inclusive, and that is one kind of mind training. Another is the cultivation of bodhicitta, the uh, cultivation of a loving heart, of really seeing, you know, how much suffering there is in the world. And since I was little, I wanted to help. You know, I wanted to end suffering. I wanted to serve. Mm. And to have that sensibility constantly arising, like, is this really going to serve here? Mm. Will this end suffering? And then the other has to do with um, engaging in, uh, you know, actions or living a life where, you know, I'm in the charnel ground a lot. (laughs) Not, you know, I haven't. Uh, uh, sat down with the Trump voter yet. That's on my bucket list. <laughs> but, you know, it's, I'm working in really poor parts of this country and of the world, of working with dying people, of working with homeless people, of working in the prison system, of running these medical clinics in Nepal, mm. um, you know, of putting myself uh, in the way of harm and allowing harm to um, really leaven my character.
1: Hmm. Okay, I've got one more quote to end. Oh, no, no. Yep, (laughs) and I know it's you for sure, and it really is a, a beautiful, in my mind, summation of everything we've been talking about. Being awake is love. That's what it is. It's certainly not hate. It is certainly not fear. But what it is, it's a sense of being not separate from all the suffering and all the emptiness, all the compassion, all of the wisdom, all of the liberation, and all of the enslavement, to understand we are all that. We're in a threshold experience right now. We're in this kind of situation where we don't have any time to waste. And I like the Zen evening verse that we chant that goes, Life and death are of supreme importance. Time passes swiftly, and the opportunity is lost. Let us awaken, awaken. Do not squander your life. I don't know when you said that, wrote that. It's probably years ago, but is it it's pretty apt for, for the core of what we're in right now, I would say.
2: Well, yeah, I agree. Thanks, Raghu, for uh, reminding me of um, of where my heart is. Mm. Yeah. Thank you so much. And thank you for everything you do for Ramdas and also for the world and bringing this, uh, you know, the power of love and the power of Dharma forth. Mm. So
1: thank you. And by the way, before I leave, everybody, before we leave. I want everybody to know that you, so the website that you can connect with Roshi on is upaya.org. Am That's I right. correct? Upa, U-P-A-Y-A dot org. And one of the things that I personally want to highly suggest, Roshi does incredible work in Nepal. And uh, since that uh, devastating earthquake, um, and she's been instrumental—one of the people instrumental in helping rebuild a people's lives. So uh, please uh, consider going up there and um, and helping out there through a donation. And uh, okay, and uh, oh, and you have a new book coming out. We gonna I do. Okay, at so the edge. At the edge,
2: <laughs> and okay. we are at it.
1: I and mean, we're here. Yeah. When is that coming, Roche?
2: You know, uh, listen. I wish it were yesterday. Anybody who's right. written a book knows right, right. how much fun it is if you're not a writer. So, I'm in it. I'm uh, actually. I'm just working on a a big chapter ragu on respect, mm. and um, mm. I uh, I'm I'm thick into this into this uh, world right now. Right. Um, yeah, Yeah. maybe I can read, um, I'll read you just one little paragraph, then we'll sign off.
1: Oh, beautiful. Please.
2: I believe that there are few who are not aware of the importance of respect in our world today. It is the very tissue that makes for a healthy world. Anthropologist William Yuri wrote in his book, The Third Side, human beings have a host of emotional needs for love and recognition, for belonging and identity, for purpose and meaning to lives. If all these needs had to be subsumed in one word, it might be respect. And I go on to say, respect builds trust, healthy empathy, and moral character. It lends dignity to our human relationships And our relationship with our earth. It is the basis of love, justice, and an expression, and is an expression of wisdom. It is also an expression of what it means to treat others with consideration and compassion, and it is the path for transforming conflict into reconciliation. Without having ourselves firmly rooted in respect for beings and ourselves, our world is imperiled. That is why, for me, respect is an edge state. Standing on the high side of respect, we express the best in the human heart. Falling into disrespect, we engender vast harm. So, my hope. Um, My hope is to bring forth a deeper sense of respect in our world today, Raghu, and um, uh, see if we can dial back some of the scorn, derision, um, bullying that has uh, uh, overwhelmed so many people today and bring forth what Ram Dass and and you and I and so many of us care about, which is love and
1: respect. Hmm. Beautiful. What a book this is going to be. I can't wait. Keep working on it. Don't travel so much. Stay home and work on the book. Thank you, Raghu. Thank you so much. Much love. Much and love to Sarah's you, body. Okay. Thank you. Thank you.